Hello and welcome to a new episode of the Talking Indonesia podcast. My name is Ken Stiawan from Melbourne University's Asia Institute and today's podcast focuses on Islamic populism in Indonesia. Islam appears to be increasingly dominating Indonesian society and culture, while electoral success of Islamic political parties remains limited. This raises questions about the historical development of Islamic populism in Indonesia, as well as what we can learn from the experiences of Islamic populism in other Muslim-majority countries. And how likely is it for Islamic populism to dominate Indonesian politics? Here to talk about these topics is Vedi Hadis, who is Professor in Asian Studies at the University of Melbourne and author of the recently published book, Islamic Populism in Indonesia and the Middle East. Vedi, welcome mm. to the Talking Indonesia podcast. Thank you for inviting me. Studies of Islamic populism often look at the phenomenon as um, a response to secularism, uh, focusing more on radical Islam. You take a different view in your book. How do you define Islamic populism and how does it emerge in the Indonesian context? Well, in order to understand Islamic populism, I think uh, one needs to grapple with uh, populism in general. Uh, populism uh, has a long history in the world and also in Indonesia, but in a nutshell, really, it is about conceiving of politics as a conflict between a mass of virtuous yet socially, economically deprived and oppressed people against a an elite and it could be partially a foreign elite, you know, that are rapacious, greedy, immoral, and who suppress and repress the, 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 the virtuous masses. So in a way it reflects uh, people's uh, anxieties, grievances, uh, and distrust, you know, in the existing social order, and in the way that official politics, you know, is has, has been constructed. Now, Islamic populism is a variant of that in my conception. Now, the key thing here is in Islamic populism, the concept that is supposed to bring together people of various uh, socio-economic backgrounds is that of the Ummah. Which is the community of Muslims. The virtuous and pious and perennially suppressed Ummah versus uh, an elite that is uh, immoral, greedy, uh, starting from the Dutch colonialists in the case of Indonesia, to the new order and now to, you know, to, to sort of corrupt politicians and so on in, in the democratic period. So you argue that Islamic populism is a response to inequality. Uh, can you give an example of such a group in Indonesia? To, to give you, uh, a, I suppose, a stark example is that uh, you, you could look at the PKS and which, a bunch yeah, the, the uh, Justice and Prosperity Party, which is you know, the most successful uh, Islamic party in Indonesia uh, since the advent of the democratic period. Now, the PKS has shifted from a more Islamist agenda to one that can be regarded as more of um, as the middle of the political spectrum, I suppose, focusing a lot also on social issues such as anti-corruption and anti-poverty. How can you explain that shift or how has it developed? The PKS, you know, uh, 
develop you know, sort of as an underground movement in, in, on campuses and so on in the 80s and so on. But then they developed you know, a sort of a professional middle class constituency that uh, w was, uh, was able to uh, uh, adapt to the uh, you know, imperatives of the democratic period gradually understand how to use their uh, base in particularly campuses in Indonesia to develop a political vehicle that would eventually be quite effective uh, and uh, it's turned out that you know various governments have tried to bring them in right so they've tasted power right because they've tasted power you know they they, they kind of relegate uh, the 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 agenda of establishing an Islamic state to the background. So over time, the PKS has been absorbed into mainstream politics and has changed or turned down some of its more radical ideas. Does this mean that the inclusion of these groups into the mainstream may have a moderating effect? Yeah, there is this idea that you know you you bring in uh, uh, people you know who are in the periphery, you bring them into the mainstream, and then. Uh, you know, this sort of automatically uh, uh, sort of uh, moderates them. Uh, I think that's an oversimplification, to be honest. Uh, uh, I mean, it is uh, quite possible for, uh, you know, those in the periphery to be brought into the mainstream and actually then, you know, uh, reshape the mainstream. And we see that in many Western countries now where, where discourses about immigration and, and racism and so on that wouldn't have been part of the mainstream 20 or 30 years ago are now part of the mainstream because, you know, the BNP, you know, in, in Britain and, and uh, 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 Sarah, Sarah Palin in America and the National Front over in France, uh, Gert Wilders in Holland are part of the mainstream national discourse. Right, so so it's not automatically automatic that they get moderated. They might change the mainstream. Mm. Now, in this case, the PKS, I wouldn't say has been moderated, but they have learned to uh, adapt and to to survive within the imperatives of a very money politics driven form of democracy in Indonesia. So you're talking about quite a dynamic development yeah, yeah. which is very variable mm. as well. Um, now would you say that we see in Indonesia certain areas where Islamic populism has taken more hold than others and if so why? Well uh, I think that uh, Islamic populism like uh, in other parts of the world because I think this is a global uh, phenomenon uh, is particularly strong in areas uh, that are highly urbanized and the sort of uh, peri-urban areas, you know, surrounding uh, these urbanized cores. Why? Because it is in these sorts of localities that the sorts of grievances, the sort of uh, anxieties and so on about, about life and about your place in society, your future and so on, you know, get really uh, uh, focused. So you're arguing mm. that um, people choose to support these mm. um, groups or political, Islamic political parties mm. more out of um, uh, dissatisfaction with their um, social conditions yeah. rather than um, Islamic thought uh, or... Well, Islamic thought provides the, 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 you know, the, the symbolic glue. It gives the meaning yeah uh, uh, it, it, it makes sense 
to, to the struggle. Uh, it, it provides sense to the struggle. Uh, it, it provides them with a lens through which to view their lives and society, right? But uh, what, why is this particularly uh, powerful is because in societies like Indonesia, uh, but also other societies uh, in the Islamic world, uh, the options are fairly limited in terms of outlets to channel those sorts of grievances. I mean, the left doesn't really exist in Indonesia in spite of what gen some generals are saying now. Okay, I mean, it was obliterated uh, half a century ago. And you might also, you know, consider the fact that political liberalism never really took root in Indonesia. Uh, uh, the only other possibility really is, uh, you know, sort of Sukarnoist type, you know, nationalism, secular nationalism. Uh, you know, th this provides, you know, you know, sort of a set of symbols and imagery and so on that, that, that people can also sort of latch on to. And that's why you find that in a lot of the, uh, you know, sort of uh, you know, slums in you know, sort of uh, places like Jakarta or Solo and so on, uh, you find conflicts between quote unquote Islamic and nationalist gangs, you know, uh, because you know these are the sort of uh, paramilitary arms of these, you know, sort of uh, political tendencies, uh, and the, the the pool of people from which they recruit are 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 fairly similar, you know, uh, sociologically speaking, right? But but some latch on to the imagery of of, of Islam to make sense. Of their plight, you know, and, and and others, you know, to 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 that of nationalism. So the rise of Islamic populism can, to a large extent, be explained by that Islam is one of the very few frameworks available to Indonesians in this case to express their dissatisfaction with the situation that they find themselves in. Now I'd like to turn to the comparisons that you have drawn in your book with the Middle East, in particular Egypt and Turkey. Why did you choose to compare Indonesia with these two countries? With Turkey and Egypt and sort of the Middle East in general, I saw things that, that really, really, uh, you know, the more I read and studied them, I thought, well, this is Indonesia. Uh, one, uh, these are societies where, you know, at the end of the uh, period of, uh, you know, global colonialism, Islamic forces failed to win control over the uh, 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 national state. The second thing is that in all of these places uh, you had a, a, a period where you kind of had you know, a kind of a militantly you know, nationalist period, you know, like Sukarno and then there's Nasserism, right, and there's Kemalism over in Turkey. So those are, yeah, so the Nasserist state, the Kemalist state, and 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 the Sukarno is Suharto state, you know, no matter how different they were, uh, uh, it provided you know lots of nice you know, comparisons and and, and, and contrast. I mean, the sort of state bureaucracy that emerged, you know, uh, 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 you know, the relationship between the military and the state in all these places, the military have been important, right? Not only politically, but as, as economic actors as well. And the other thing is that in all of these places, surge toward a kind of you know, leftist form of nationalism was uh, mitigated by uh, developments during the Cold War. And the final thing is that uh, these three countries, of course, are three big you know, is, uh, Islamic 
you know, majority Muslim majority countries. Uh, Indonesia and Turkey, you know, are in the top twenty biggest economies in the world. E uh, Egypt, you know, is is more economically stagnant. But you also see that you've had three different forms of trajectories of Islamic politics. In Turkey, you get an outcome where, after you know half a century of trying, or, and more actually, uh, you know, the social agents of Islamic politics finally did win state power. And you know, not just through in the form of winning an election, but you know, over the last fifteen years, have have tried to reshape the state to such an extent so that you know the the Kamalist foes, you know, they you know, are, are are subordinated and uh, and peripheralized as as much as possible. Hence, all these trials of the military generals and and, and so on that you see in Turkey. So, so here's a, 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 a case where, you know, where Islamic populism actually won the state, right? In Egypt, you get, you get a situation where, uh, except for that brief period where Morsi was in power, uh, uh, Islamic populism was in control, basically, of civil society through charitable organizations, through, uh, you know, sort of through... Uh, uh, control over uh, uh, social organizations, professional associations, uh, 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 medical facilities in, in, in rural and urban uh, poor areas and so on. So, you know, so the Muslim Brotherhood controlled civil society but were never able to get into state power except for that brief period of Morsi. So that's, you know, that's different from Turkey. Winning civil society, losing the state. Okay, Indonesia is a case where, uh, you know, for for more than half a century, you know, uh, the social agents of Islamic politics have, in spite of some inroads, in spite of the Islamization of society that has taken place all over the Islamic world in the last you know thirty or forty years, have failed to both win the state and society. So these are three very different trajectories. What you've been sketching are three countries which are highly comparable, but also where we see different outcomes, different trajectories of Islamic politics, from failing to win both state and society, as you say, in Indonesia, whereas in Egypt and in Turkey, we've seen Islamist forces that have been able to control civil society and the state, respectively. What explains these divergences? Well, uh, it has to do with... Uh with uh, the outcomes of, of social conflicts that occurred at you know, key junctures in, 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 in the historical process. Uh, I think one of the key things, uh, to, put, to simplify things uh, 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 greatly, uh, one of the things that, uh, that uh, post-colonial Islam in Indonesia was and continues to be is highly fragmented. Uh, even though you have the Muhammadiyah and the and the Nadatul Ulama as the major social organizations, uh, basically they became virtually part of the state during the new order, uh, 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 and therefore don't really uh, uh, resonate in terms of mobilizing resistance, you know, to to a particular uh, social order. So you're actually arguing that the marginalised, if we go back to Indonesia, the marginalised position of political Islam in Indonesia can be explained through historical yeah, and sociological yeah, factors yeah, yeah. and um, that despite the many 
similarities between mm. Indonesia and Egypt and Turkey, mm. those things have developed differently yes. and that that has determined the, the, the right. space of uh, yeah. or the, the popularity of Islamic That's politics. Right. Now at the same time we do see um, uh, that um, although Islamic political parties in Indonesia have had limited electoral success, mm. we do see um, Islamization of the bureaucracy, the emergence of regional regulations mm. in particular mm. based on Islam or supposedly based on Islam that regulate how women dress or mm. you know what time they leave the house. It seems to be more a social Islamization mm. than going on rather than a political. Mm. How do you explain that? Well, the... the Two, two, I think, levels uh, to, to, to the answer. One is that this is part of a global phenomenon. Uh, you know, the, the, soci the social uh, Islamization uh, is something that you can see happen uh, all through the Muslim world uh, in Malaysia, uh, uh, South Asia, uh, uh, and the Middle East. It happened at almost the same time everywhere. What does that coincide with? Neoliberalism, globalization taking place in the absence of leftist critiques of the social dislocations that accompany the penetration of neoliberal globalization, right? And with the weakness of liberal impulses in many of these societies in the Middle East, like in Indonesia, uh, the attack on the left then spilled over into attack on liberalism, whatever, you know, what little of liberalism there was. Basically, it was the way that people began to understand and make sense of the world. You know, religion provided a set of ideas for, for individuals, you know, to, to, to sort of make sense and navigate through this you know, sort of neoliberal, global, global neoliberal jungle. But the, on another level, uh, uh, it's this actually. Uh, if, you, if you trace the process, the case of Solo and Central Java in general, and I think this is really interesting. A lot of these areas uh, where, where uh, Densus 88, you know, the special forces, Indonesian anti-terrorism anti forces are, are, are most active, are places that used to be strongholds of of radical nationalism and communism in Indonesia. And yet they're now where you find a lot of these people that, you know, have latched on to either very militantly radical Islamic organizations, if not outright terrorist groups. And that always fascinated me actually, because I remember going to central Java, you know, in the early eighties, and I remember, you know, going to villages and so on. You, didn't see a woman with a hijab. You never did. So when I was doing my field work, uh, you know, I, I went to some places that I went, went to, you know, 30 years ago and so on. I said, this is completely transformed. You know, not just because there are factories now and, and you know, and, and, and there are roads and it's all more polluted and all that, but, you know, but just socially, it's just so different. You know, and, and, and so I got really interested in what, what happened. It dawned on me, I think, finally, that the process actually goes further, much further than, than you know, by starting point of the early 1980s. It goes all the way back to the 1960s, when uh, 
a lot of uh, the Darul Islamists. Established in 1942, Darul Islam aims for the formation of an Islamic state in Indonesia. Who were recruited by the military to fight the communists, uh, uh, you know, even though they weren't from central Java or not the parts of central Java where we now find them, uh, you know, sort of migrated to, the, to, to these areas. Partly it was because uh, a lot of the people in these areas tried to escape being labeled communists and therefore death by picking up a religion. In many cases it was Christianity, right? In places like Klatan and so on, there's you know, you know, lots of Christianity. But, but in a lot of other places, well, it, it was Islam. For that generation who, who did convert, it was performa mostly. But their children take it seriously. So I found, you know, uh, young people, maybe in the late 20s, you know, uh, maybe early 30s, who, who say that, oh yeah, my parents uh, or my grandparents were communists. And, and they're really devoutly, mus uh, devoutly Muslim and, you know, very, very socially and politically conscious of their Islam. And, and, and the generation gap is, oh, my, my parents, even though they converted to Islam, they're not religious enough. And in fact, this whole village isn't religious enough. I think it partly happened because, you know, in, in this per period where people were latching on to religions to escape uh, being labeled communists, the Dewan Dawa Islamia, which is an organization for the dissemination of Islam, set out proselytizing in formerly communist and radical nationalist areas. And, and it was just natural that all these people coming from outside you know, would come in as preachers and whatnot, you know. And I have, you know, many Dewan Dawa Islamia people who, who, who deny that this happened, but others say, oh yeah, up to the 1980s, you know, all these Darul Islamists, you could find them in our offices, you know, we, you know, they, they were, they, you know, they, they were part of, uh, of what we did. So, 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 actually, Darul Islam, which except for, you know, certain parts of central Java, really didn't make an inroad ironically installed themselves during the new order. Yes. So you're saying that mm. this social Islamization, yeah. I suppose, that we are witnessing in Indonesia um, is, well, we see it elsewhere in the world yeah, as well. Yeah. So it's on one hand, as you say, a natural development, mm -hmm. but on the other, it's also one that has been actively promoted yeah, by yeah. Islamic groups, yeah, yeah. taking advantage yeah. of uh, a lack of alternative frameworks, yeah. in particular yeah. a leftist uh, framework, yeah, yeah. as you say. Yeah. Now, um, taking that together and to wrap up this podcast, what would you then say um, does the future look like mm. for Islamic politics mm. and populism in Indonesia? Yeah. Well, the thing about uh, this, uh, you know, social Islam is that it doesn't automatically translate into political Islam, at least not effective and powerful political Islam. And that hasn't happened in Indonesia, partly because uh, um, there are foes uh, 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 that they have to face in terms of uh, uh, alternative forms of populism, and that is particularly, particularly nationalist populism. Uh, you find that they, 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 they fight each other really uh, uh, to, over the same social constituency. So that's a hindrance to, 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 to political Islam. Secondly, uh, you find that for those who, you know, who, who've gone into the system, uh, they've been, you know, sort of uh, gobbled up by the system of money politics uh, and 
have lost a lot of their claims to you know integrity, honesty, and morality, uh, you know, which attracted attracted people in the first place. But but generally, I I said that you know post-colonial Islamic politics in Egypt was fragmented, but democracy with its money politics and its fluid alliance building and so on has actually accentuated that fragmentation. So that's another hindrance for Islamic populism in Asia. And for those operating outside of the system, uh, 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 yeah, the, the hindrance is uh, the inability, uh, the, 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 the lack of, of resources to be able to actually forge uh, effective you know, cross-class alliances uh, and therefore to, to, to sort of uh, uh, just recruit from, you know, from young people coming out of, you know, sort of semi-urban areas and sort of, uh, you know, sort of angry and, and, and aggrieved and so on, but, but, but not really going beyond that. And therefore, uh, I think that even though you've got that social Islamization, over the, even though Islamic politics is, you know, a, 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 an important part of Indonesian politics, uh, it's a long way from threatening to, you know, take over power in Indonesia. Thank you, Ferry, for your time and your insights. Oh, you're welcome. That was Professor Ferry Hadis on Islamic populism. The next Talking Indonesia podcast, hosted by my colleague Dave McRae, will be available on the 30th of June. And a reminder, you can find the entire Talking Indonesia podcast series at the Indonesia at Melbourne blog or subscribe via iTunes or Stitcher. Many thanks for listening. Until next time, this has been the Talking Indonesia podcast.